Before we dive into Matthew 23 today, let's, let's talk a little bit about a fashion item that nearly everyone has to decide upon. Jeans. Anybody ever have to decide upon jeans? Or is it just me? No, a jeans is a popular item. Where do you buy your jeans? What brand do you buy? For some, there's, there's the tried and tested and trusty pair of Levi's that you can get at Target or Walmart or Macy's or really pretty much wherever uh, jeans are sold. Uh, maybe you want a higher-end pair of jeans and you go to the Lucky Brand store, maybe down at Bridgewater or someplace else. Actually, if you have a favorable size, you can find Lucky Brand at Costco. Uh, but for those of us that have short inseams and skinny legs, it's a much more arduous journey to find a pair of pants. Amen? Yeah, some of you know what I'm talking about. Uh, now, another option for jean purchase is Nordstrom's. And I want to pause here for a moment because I just read this week that, interestingly, uh, there is a pair of Nordstrom jeans that are sold on the Internet. Uh, and some customers have wondered if somebody is literally playing a dirty joke. Uh, because if you go to the Nordstrom website, you will find that this is a pair of mud-stained, heavily distressed jeans available for purchase. They look a little bit like this. Um, now, the retailer markets it this way. This is what they say. Uh, these jeans here embody rugged Americana workwear that's seen some action with a crackled, caked-on, muddy coating that shows you're not afraid to get down and dirty. Well, now who doesn't want to buy a pair like this, right? Except the price is, is guess. $425. How much would you pay for a pair of dirty jeans? I mean, seriously. Now, according to CNN Money, this filthy fashion statement isn't actually new. Uh, these jeans have been on sale at Nordstrom's as well as Neiman Marcus, Saks Fifth Avenue for quite some time. Uh, but don't worry, if you want to buy a pair yourself, uh, you don't have to ruin the rugged, you, you don't have to worry about ruining the rugged look. The jeans can apparently be washed. Just make sure you follow the careful care instructions. Now, I'm going to ask the question that is on a lot of people's minds. Why would anybody buy a pair of mud-stained jeans? I mean, I thought if you get mud on your jeans, you're supposed to put them in the washer, right, and clean them up. But notice, again, how the jeans are marketed. <clears throat> These jeans show that you are not afraid to get down and dirty. In other words, you can look like you've done some hard work without actually having done any hard work. In essence, you can pretend you are something you're not. Now, before you laugh and think this off and think, oh, I would never do that. That's not, that's not me. I want to ask you a question today. Is there any area of your life where you're playing a part? Is there any area of your life where you are trying to be something you are not? Now, maybe it's not genes, but maybe there are areas of your life where you're not genuine, um, where you're trying to be something you're not, where you're wearing mud-stained jeans for no reason. Now, I bring all this up because it is at the heart of our passage today in Matthew 23. Um, it has been called, this chapter has been called the chapter of the seven woes because seven times Jesus calls out the religious leaders for being something they're not. He says they're blind guides, they're, they're serpents, they're, they're vipers. They have deceived people out of the kingdom of heaven. In fact, there's one word that is repeated over and over again in this passage, and it's the word hypocrite. Hypocrite, he says. He calls them hypocrites. A hypocrite, by definition, is someone who is pretending to be something they are not. 
In other words, in this climactic confrontation, Jesus is calling the scribes and the Pharisees out for pretending to be something they're not for wearing the wrong pair of jeans. And it has deep spiritual implications. In fact, pastor and author David Platt summarizes the passage and the Pharisees' problem this way. He says, It is possible for you and me to genuinely believe that we are doing God's work, obeying God's word, and accomplishing God's will, yet be deceived and experience life outside of the kingdom of God. See, in this passage, Jesus is not playing games. It is serious. Our relationship with him cannot be faked. It must be genuine. And so today, what I would like to talk with you about is the topic of hypocrisy. Jesus' words have immediate implications for the Jewish religious leaders, but also for us. Are we also hypocrites? And if the answer is yes, is there hope for us? Well, I would suggest there are four actions we must do to avoid hypocrisy. Four actions rooted in our text today. The first one is this. We have to open the right door. Secondly, we have to see the big picture. Third, we have to get under the hood. And finally, we have to look in the mirror. Jesus' words today will sound harsh, but I pray they produce soft, teachable hearts. And with that in mind, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you. And Lord, we recognize even today as we talk about a topic like hypocrisy, it's, it's, it's difficult. It's hard. If you've read this passage before, Jesus doesn't pull any punches. And so, Lord, I pray for my friends today. I pray for myself today, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would um, show us how to be more genuine, how to pursue you more, Lord. Show us what following you looks like. And I pray that as we leave today, that we would be changed and transformed all for your glory, Lord, and the sake of your gospel. And we pray that in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, let's begin with action one. Open the right door. Now, now you may be saying, hold on a second. There's seven woes. Why is there only four actions? Uh, What I'm going to suggest to you today is that the first six woes should be read in groups of two. And then the seventh woe will be by itself. So let's picture the scene. Let's set the stage. You've been walking, we've been walking through the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, and we've, we've now come to the final week of his life. At the beginning of chapter 1, Jesus is celebrated as he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. But that celebration quickly turns to confrontation. And shortly after his entrance into Jerusalem, Jesus starts to cause trouble. He cleanses the temple. He confronts the religious leaders numerous Times and these confrontations reach a climax in Matthew 23 13, where Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Now, let me remind you of something here. Uh, the scribes and the Pharisees are the most religious spiritual people of their time. In fact, just picture some well-known church leader in our day, and that would be equivalent to the Pharisees. No doubt Jesus' words here are extremely bold, and it's no wonder that these Pharisees plotted to kill him. Now, in verses 1 to 12 of chapter 23, Jesus explains the hypocrisy of the Pharisees to the crowds. Well, then he turns directly to the Pharisees themselves and calls them out. He says, you're hypocrites. And what's the first indictment? 
He says, they shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Now, the force of the Greek grammar here has the idea of slamming a door in people's faces. Now, just, just for a second here, picture a moment when maybe a door was slammed in your face. What did it sound like? What did it feel like? Right? Only this is the door that leads to salvation. Because the Pharisees do this, woe has come upon them, which is generally meaning they have divine judgment on them. But why are they hypocrites? And how have they shut the door? Well, this imagery calls us all the way back to the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus there discusses the narrow road, as well as Matthew 16, where Jesus tells Peter that he is giving him the keys to the kingdom. And do you remember what the key was that Jesus gave to Peter and the disciples? It was the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. In other words, believing that Jesus is the Messiah is what opens the door to the kingdom of heaven. And so to reject Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, is to slam the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. And that's precisely what the Pharisees have done. Now, this first woe sets the stage for all the other woes to follow. Because they are claiming to know the truth, but they're rejecting Jesus as the Christ. They're slamming the door in people's faces. Instead, the second woe indicates that the Pharisees are more focused on building their own brand of religion. Look at verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Whoa. That first woe is stronger than the first. Their hypocrisy has caused other people to become children of hell. Now, the second one makes the same point as the first, that to, to keep a person from entering the kingdom uh, is to send them to, to eternal hellfire, which is the metaphor that Gehenna, the word for hell there, uh, is representing. Now, the word for proselyte here, which you might not know what it is, that refers to someone who became a full convert to Judaism. This meant that they had to have <clears throat> a little surgery, right? They had to get circumcised. That was the sign of the covenant. And if they didn't do this, they were simply considered a God-fearer. It's clear from this verse that Jewish sages were traveling around to synagogues trying to convince God-fearers to become full proselytes. In other words, they wanted people to buy into their brand of religion. In fact, I suppose if the Pharisees purchased genes today, it would have to be true religion. But here's the thing. They were so effective at promoting their brand of Judaism that they made people twice as much a son of hell as themselves. In other words, their followers were all in. But they walked through the wrong door. Now, there's an old movie going back about 20 years now called The Matrix. And in that film, humanity has become enslaved by their, their machine overlords who've deceived them into believing that The Matrix is real. But truthfully, the matrix is a computer-generated fantasy world that human beings are plugged into. But there's a group of freedom fighters, led by a man named Morpheus, played by Lawrence Fishburne, who seeks to free people from the matrix. Keanu Reeves, who you see on that picture, plays the main character of Neo. And when Morpheus and his people come to free Neo, they give him the choice of taking one of two pills. Do you remember? The red pill or the blue pill? One will lead to the truth, 
The other will keep him in the fantasy world of the Matrix. Now, the Pharisees here convinced their followers to buy their brand of religion. But it wasn't the true religion, no. And so as a result, the door of the kingdom of God was slammed in people's faces. But the question, I think, for us today is this. Which brand are we buying? See, we live in a world filled with brand appeal. And if your brand isn't compelling, people won't buy your product, right? In fact, behind me, you'll see a number of different brands on this slide. And they all make you think about something that probably has captured your heart in some way. Now, this is convicting because... Too often, Jesus is not the brand that captures our hearts. See, we may attend church on Sunday. We may, we may serve in ministry. We may read our Bible fairly regularly, but we've bought a different brand of religion. I mean, Jesus may be part of it, but he's certainly not the whole thing, right? And so as a result, the door is slammed shut to the kingdom of heaven. Because apart from a life surrendered to Jesus, we go through the wrong door, we swallow the wrong pill, and we become hypocrites. Now, before we move on to point two, let me ask you a question. Um, when you wake up in the morning, do you look at yourself in the mirror? Probably most of us would say yes. And I'll be honest, I do. I mean, I, I, I pull out my mirror. Sometimes it looks a little bit like this, right? I check myself out, make sure my hair looks okay, uh, make sure there's no blemishes on my face. Uh, I make sure my clothes match. And after I give myself the once over in the mirror, and if I did a good job, I sit there and admire myself. <laughs> Maybe you do too. But you know what I don't do very often? I don't take this mirror and examine my heart. I admire all the products that made me look good, the hair products and their brand, the, the shirt and its brand, the jeans and the shoes and their brand. But what's really captured my heart? I mean, in that sense, am I any different than the Pharisees who promoted themselves and their brand of religion? Are we also hypocrites? Because if we want to be genuine followers of Jesus, we have to open the right door. And once we open the right door, we get to point two. We start to see the big picture. We start to see the big picture. Now, opening the right door guards against hypocrisy, but seeing the big picture takes us a step further. The Pharisees clearly missed the point because they loved to get into the weeds of the law. Look at how Jesus continues his scathing rebu rebuke. Verse 16, woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? Now, Jesus doesn't just call them hypocrites. He here calls them blind because they're blind to the truth. And the discussion about oaths here goes all the way back again to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus brought this topic up as something hip, religious hypocrites do. As indicated in that session of scripture, oaths were simply a part of everyday life. But what the rabbis did, what the Pharisees did, was they would spend a large, a large, large, large amount of time distinguishing between valid oaths and invalid oaths. And their conclusion was this, oaths based on God's divine name and attributes were binding with one exception, things dedicated to the temple because it was considered a gift to God. Now, in verse 17, the original language indicates that Jesus literally called the Pharisees here blind 
morons. Can you picture Jesus calling you a moron? That's what he does here. And he gives several more examples, but ultimately he concludes with these words in verse 22. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Now, the bottom line for this third woe is this. Every oath, no matter how great or small, involves God and his throne and its binding. As stated in the Sermon on the Mount, every oath by nature centers on God and is made in relation with God. So let your yes be yes and your no be no. All our promises will be judged before God. But the Pharisees, oh, the Pharisees love to argue the law. In fact, Jesus says, why are you arguing about things that don't matter? Why? So you can look good? I mean, so other people can think you're better than them at keeping the law? This is works righteousness. It's a false gospel, and it distracts from the main thing. He makes this point more emphatically in the fourth woe statement. Verse 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. See, it seems the Pharisees will go to great lengths to regulate trivial matters. And the next matter, again, here is no different, tithing. He talks about mint and dill and cumin, which are marginally edible, aromic weeds occasionally used for seasoning. And the Pharisees actually debated the need to tithe these weeds. Talk about getting in the weeds. Now, let me ask you another question. Have you ever met anybody who likes to get in the weeds? Right? So maybe perhaps you're having a meeting at work and there's one person who really is just wanting to, to beat that dead horse that nobody else cares about. Right? The point doesn't matter to the rest of the group, but to this one person, they're really concerned. Why? Well, not all the time, but, but often this person wants to exert power or prove they know more than other people in the room. And that's what the Pharisees are like here. They're, they're trying to justify their position at the meeting. And by doing this, they, they miss the big picture. Now, let me come back to the mirror for just a second here. Because when people get in the weeds, it's like they're looking at their situation in a mirror that's far too small. I mean, this is a pretty small mirror right here. I mean, they take that small mirror and they focus on one part of the problem, right? They, 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 they look at the outfit they're wearing, but they can only see, like, in here I can only see my face and my shirt, maybe my coat. Um, I miss my pants and my shoes. And so if you want to see the big picture, what you need is to have a better mirror. You need to have a bigger mirror, right? And so now you can start to see most of the whole you can go up there, you can see the whole outfit, you can see if your, your shoes and your pants match, and some wives out there are saying, I wish my husband looked in the mirror more often, because it just, it just doesn't work out. But you need a bigger mirror, a better mirror to see the whole picture. Jesus sees the whole picture here. See, he corrects the Pharisees. He says, you've missed the weightier matters of the law. In other words, these other points aren't unimportant, but they are not the most important thing. You know what's important? Justice. Mercy faithfulness. And if we get distracted by these small, minute details, we are going to miss the things that are really important, and that hurts the kingdom. It causes others to miss the point, and it makes us hypocrites who say we want to follow Jesus, but really we're in it for ourselves. These small things become distractions 
from the main thing. So we can sit here all day and we can debate the finer points of tithing weeds, right? Or we can talk about how to defend people's rights and bring justice to the world. We can talk about weeds or we can talk about extending God's grace and mercy and care to broken people. Right? We can talk about weeds, or we can display faithfulness to our family, our neighbors, and our God. Which would you rather debate? Which will transform the hearts of people? Dan Doriani puts it this way. He says, this law leads from selfishness to service, and from solitary self-concern to kinship with mankind. These are the greater things of the law. And focusing on the weeds keeps us from seeing the big picture. And when we see the big picture, our hearts are transformed and we're moved to action. We avoid hypocrisy by focusing on the weightier matters of the law that will lead to life, to heart transformation, and to glory to God. Are we seeing the big picture? Or are we still wearing mud-stained jeans? You see, the reason we don't see the big picture often is because we don't do the third action. We don't get under the hood. We don't get under the hood. That's point three. See, if we stop for a moment and we actually considered what was going on in our heart, you might see our true motivation for fighting those fights that don't matter. We might see why we are always having to win that debate. Or or getting under the hood causes us to examine our motivations and how we have constructed our identity. In short, getting under the hood helps us see what makes our engines run. Now, About a year ago, I started to learn a little bit about my car's engine. Here's a picture of my Pride and Joy 2008 Subaru Impreza. It's been with me a long time. I got it in 2009, right after I graduated from seminary. It's been with me from coast to coast. I've had it for 10 years, and occasionally it starts to give me some problems. In fact, Pastor Dave uh, recently showed me a thing or two, and so now when things don't feel right or they don't sound right, I actually open up the hood and take a look. Now, the longer the car is running, the more likely something will go wrong, the more maintenance it needs. And the longer we walk in the Christian life, I would suggest, the longer we build up our religious resume, the greater chance we have of thinking that we've graduated from God's grace. Now, the way we grow in the Christian life is by constantly looking under the hood, constantly guarding against hypocrisy. But here's what I think. Here's what many of us do. Uh, what we do is we start looking on, at our outward appearance. We find comfort in religious activities, and we don't really get under the hood and go deep. Because if we're honest, we're going through the motions so other people won't judge us. Not because we want to know Jesus more intimately. And when we do that, it's like noticing that something is wrong under the hood of your car, but then we take it to the car wash, not the mechanic. I mean, how ridiculous is that? The Pharisees have been shutting the door to the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, building their own brand of religion and missing the main point. Why? Something's wrong under the hood in their heart. And that's where Jesus goes next in verse 25. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. First, clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and the outside also may be clean. 
Now, these next two woes bring us back to this outside-inside language. Again, that was the main theme on the Sermon on the Mount. Remember again there, Jesus' key sermon says we don't earn God's favor by living outside in. No, a transformed heart flows inside out when an earthquake shatters the Richter scale of our heart. Now, it's no surprise that the rabbis or the Pharisees had intense debates about what makes a cup or dish clean or unclean. Can you just imagine these debates? Some believe the outside was more important than the inside, so they prioritized its cleaning. But, but here's the problem, right? You can't clean the outside of the cup and leave the inside w- with moldy food. I, I mean, imagine taking all the cups in your house and only cleaning the outside. How many of you would want to drink water out of that cup? Yeah, I thought so. The point that Jesus is making for both the Pharisees and for us is this. We can't pretend that we have it all together and neglect our hearts. And that's convicting because I think we all do that to some degree. We all attend to our appearances. We, we Photoshop our lives and we neglect our hearts, the thing that really matters. And the longer we do this, the greater our hypocrisy becomes. For example, um, we may smile and pretend that we like a person. But on the inside, we are judging them or we're holding grudges against them. And so it doesn't matter how nice we pretend to be to that person or how well we think we treat them. Something is wrong on the inside and we need to clean that up if we're going to really be genuine. Otherwise, we're hypocrites. Now, Jesus is calling us to examine our motives here, but he doesn't stop there. He moves on to the core of our identity next in verse 27. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which inwardly appear beautiful, or outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Now, again, the language here is similar to the last woe, but it uses a distinctly different metaphor. The message is the same. On the outside, we can appear righteous, but on the inside, we're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Now, now the tombs that he's referring to here are whitewashed or they're cleaned annually during Passover. And so this was happening uh, literally as Jesus was, was saying this. They, the cleaning prevented Jews from defiling themselves by accidentally walking on a tomb. They looked a little bit like this. The whitewashing wasn't for beauty but to make it clear that these tombs should be avoided. And so when Jesus says the Pharisees are like whitewashed tombs, he's saying they should be avoided. It doesn't matter if they appear beautiful and righteous, they will defile people who come near them. Because a properly marked tomb keeps people clean by telling them to stay away. And that's what Jesus says in verse 28. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Because friends, appearances can be deceiving. We should examine what people are teaching us, yes, but more than that, we should examine our lives and our hearts. Why? Because we may be deceiving ourselves, believing that we're righteous, And like the Pharisees, some of us have constructed religious identities that make us look like we're following Jesus, but on the inside, it's a real different story. Have you ever asked yourself why we don't attend to our heart? Why we start to live a double life? 
Because when we look in the mirror when that happens, it looks like we're starting to wear a costume. It's almost like we don't even recognize the person who's in the mirror because we've neglected the heart that matters. And if the heart is neglected, we start to hide behind a religious mask out of fear that we will be found out. Do you ever wonder why people wear masks? You know, in ancient theatrical productions, actors began wearing masks to portray a different character or emotion from the stage. It's interesting, actually, the, the original Greek term for actor was hypocrites, which is where we get the English word hypocrite from. Now, scholars will tell you there's at least three reasons people wear masks. First, first a mask can transform your personality. In fact, the English word person comes from the Latin word persona, which means mask. In other words, wearing a mask allows you to adopt a new personality or identity with its own mannerisms and behaviors. As I mentioned, this is why we wear masks and why they've been used in theater productions for centuries. But we can also, as I said, wear religious masks. We adopt a personality and a mannerism that people at church will accept rather than revealing our true self. Second, people wear masks for protection. Now, the classic symbol would be the, th the surgical mask, which protects from disease, or a welder's mask, which prevents against the physical dangers of their work. But I would suggest people wear masks in their lives to protect them from being hurt by other people. Because in the past, maybe a family member or a, a former romantic interest or, or a friend hurts you very deeply, and now, when others interact with you, you wear a mask that appears to protect yourself. However, the mask is keeping you and those that care about you from attending to your heart. Finally, people wear masks to preserve their personality. In ancient cultures, like the picture I showed up here, people created masks at a funeral of a loved one to preserve the memory of their personality. However, today, with the advent of cameras and mobile phones and social media sites like Instagram, we preserve personality at a breathtaking pace. Again, while we're preserving our personalities, we're only allowing people to see what we want them to see. Even on pictures on social media, we're wearing a mask. And I suspect, if we're honest, many of us do this. Some of us live one way with a certain group of people and another way with a different group of people. We live one way on Sundays, and we live a different way the rest of the week. Are we hypocrites? Again, a hypocrite, by definition, is pretending to be something you're not. Are we wearing a pair of jeans that don't reflect who we truly are? And if we're doing that, why? Well, journalist Moya Sarner offers this explanation. She says it's because of envy. Now, according to her, she writes at The Guardian, <clears throat> this deadly sin is more present in our everyday lives than ever before, thanks to social media. And so she writes that not only do we compare ourselves to our friends and neighbors, I mean, we've done that for for a long, all, a long time, but now online, we measure up against people all over the globe, from celebrities to strangers to friends of friends. In fact, one therapist has coined this term, comparisonitis, an emotional sickness which can be intellectualized or curbed by willpower. But another author writes, envy is being taken to an extreme. We are constantly bombarded by photoshopped lives. In other words, lives where we are altering our appearance for some reason. Now, let me show you what this, what this software can do. Take a look at this picture. There's an original image, and there's a Photoshopped image on the other side. 
One's a lot more vivid. The colors are brighter. It's amazing what they can do. It's a big difference. But again, the question is, what mask are we wearing? What identity are we creating? Is it the real you? Because if you focus on the outside, at the expense of the heart and the inside, you very quickly become a hypocrite, pretending to be something you're not. You're wearing mud-stayed jeans when you would never, ever go near a bud pit. And so I want to suggest to you today that we all live Photoshopped lives to some extent. Unless we examine the motives of our hearts, we create a false identity where it's all about us. I mean, Jesus has a presence, but he certainly isn't the foundation. And so that leads to the final action. Now, once we get under the hood, we need to stand up and look in the mirror. And when we, when we look in the mirror, we need to ask the question, am I a hypocrite? Am I really living for Jesus or for myself? Do I look clean on the outside, but my inside is full of mold and it smells? Friends, this message isn't just for the Pharisees, because there's a little bit of Pharisee in each of our hearts. And if we don't stop and take a good, long, hard look in the mirror, we can miss what is happening on the inside. If we don't stop and look in the mirror, we deceive ourselves. In fact, the Pharisees did. Look at what Jesus' final woe says in verse 29. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in, the sh in shedding the blood of the prophets. Now, church, this is the scariest woe of them all. Because do you see what Jesus is saying here? After building his case for their hypocrisy, Jesus saves the best for last, and by doing so, he points to the future. You see, all throughout Israel's history, the prophets, the people who spoke for God, the people who said the hard things were stoned, they were killed, they were ignored. I mean, there's a history of violence in Israel. John the Baptist was just the latest in the line of people who were crucified, flogged, and chased away. But Jesus accuses the Pharisees here of doing this. He says they're building this, this elaborate monument, these tombs to all these prophets and trying to honor them and claiming, well, if we had lived in the days of our forefathers, we wouldn't have done that, Jesus. We wouldn't have killed them. We wouldn't have spilled their blood. We would have defended them. Really? You see, Jesus, Jesus looks them straight in the eye and he says this, hypocrite. Hypocrite. <laughs> because you see, Jesus knows what's coming. I mean, this is the final week. The cross is getting close. And he knows, he knows it's a matter of days that these people who claim that they're different than their ancestors, in just a few days, they're going to nail the Messiah, the Christ, to the cross. He knows they're building these elaborate tombs for these former prophets because they're trying to exonerate themselves from the actions of their ancestors. And Jesus says, hypocrite, you are the children of the people who murdered the prophets. And in just a few days, you will show yourselves to be the same as them. And Jesus says this. Jesus says this to the holiest people in the room. 
to people everyone thought had it all together. Verse 31, thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Jesus says you're just like your forefathers. And because of that, the full measure of God's wrath is being, is being filled up. It's being stored up for you because you're going to finish what your father started. And God's mercy isn't going to last forever. Because when the limit is reached, the last days will begin. And just a few days later, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the holiest of people, flogged Jesus, nailed him to a cross, and mocked him. Why? Because they were blind. Because they had built up this identity where they believed they were righteous. And when they looked in the mirror, they didn't see what God saw. They saw only what they wanted to see. So before we finish today, friends, we need to pause and look in the mirror and ask, am I a hypocrite? Where's the Pharisee in my heart? And the longer we look in the mirror, the more will be revealed. Because maybe we haven't walked through the right door. It's only when we walk through the right door. It's only when we see the big picture. It's only when we get under the hood that we can look in the mirror and really see the truth. It's only then that hypocrisy fades and a genuinely transformed heart, a genuine follower of Jesus, emerges. So what do you see when you look in the mirror? What do you see? Because if you think you could never be a hypocrite, you probably are. And if you think too highly of yourself, you probably haven't looked under the hood. And if you don't fall on your knees and cry, mercy, you probably don't see the big picture. And if you don't cling to the cross, you haven't walked through the right door. See, church, the Pharisees, all the Pharisees thought they had it all together. The Pharisees were all about outside appearances. They didn't believe they could crucify the Messiah, and yet they did. And it's only when you and I recognize that we're exactly like them that we find true hope for hypocrites like you and me. In fact, Francis Spufford writes this in his book, Unapologetic. He says, so of all things, Christianity is supposed to be about gathering, isn't it supposed to be about gathering up the good people who are shiny and happy and squeaky clean and excluding the bad people? Frightening, alien, repulsive, for the very simple reason that there aren't any good people. What it's supposed to be is a league of the guilty. And you and I are part of this league. And until we recognize that daily, hypocrisy will always rear its ugly head. And when hypocrisy takes root, the next step can lead to eternal deception. That is the warning that Jesus has for religious leaders like me and for all Christians like us. But let me end with some good news. I mean, this, this passage has got a lot of bad news. But in the end, we know there's hope. 
That this league of the guilty that you and I are part of, these are the people that Jesus weeps over. Oh, Jerusalem! Jerusalem! The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Jerusalem! The city full of hypocrites who are lost in their religion, my people. Jesus says, I weep over you. Because you indeed murdered the prophets and you're about to murder the Messiah. And Jesus turns to us, the people in the mirror, and he weeps too. Because in our sin, we are complicit in his murder. That we killed the Messiah because of our pride, our rebellion, our self-righteousness. We're too busy building our own brand rather than surrendering to Jesus. But he still has compassion on us. Look at verse 37. It says, How often I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. Did you hear that? That Jesus says to hypocrites like you and me, I will gather you as a hen gathers her chicks. I will gather you under my wings. And that imagery is the same imagery that is used in the book of Ruth, where Boaz says he's going to take Ruth under his wings as her kinsman redeemer. And Jesus says the same thing to us, the league of the guilty, hypocrites like the Pharisees. He comes to us and says, come here. Come under my wings and you will find redemption. Church, just let that message of grace wash over you today. It's the same message of the psalmist in Psalm 91 who wrote, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust under his wings. You will find refuge. And church, that's good news. As painful as the bad news is, after you hear it, it makes the good news so much sweeter. That Jesus says, under my wings, at the foot of the cross, hypocrites find hope because of the cro on the cross, Jesus paid for our hypocrisy. Amen? Never forget this, church. Hope is found under the wings of the Savior. And after his climactic confrontation with the Pharisees, Jesus begins his final journey to the cross. And the reason there's hope for hypocrites is because Jesus didn't stay on the cross. He rose from the grave. Because of his grace, he resurrects us from a life destined for destruction. He gives us new life. And now we can bow before the feet of King Jesus who offers us this new life free of hypocrisy. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back on stage. There's one more song they're going to play for us. And as they come, I would remind you, there's a choice involved here. Because Jesus says he will gather us under his wings if we're willing. But he says this to the Pharisees. You weren't willing. You were not willing. So how about you? Are you willing? See, Jesus comes to us today with a mirror. He holds it up in front of us and exposes the deepest places of our hearts and we have to choose if we're willing to come under his wings, if we're willing to lay aside our brand appeal and fall at his feet. You know, before he wrote half of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul was considered the most religious of men. Then he met Jesus on the Damascus Road, and his true heart was revealed. 
Nicodemus, another religious leader, comes to Jesus at night and asks what he must do to be born again. I've heard stories of pastors and elders coming forward at Billy Graham crusades, surrendering their lives to Jesus, thinking they were Christians. But yet they weren't willing to surrender their lives to Jesus. How about you? Hope is found under the wings of the Savior. Are you willing to come today? I'm going to invite those that have agreed to do prayer partnerships up front now. You have the opportunity to come after the service is done and have them pray with you, but you can also come now as the song is playing. And if there's anybody here who doesn't know Christ, I pray that you would come, that you would pray, or if you've been, you've been living a life here at church, you say, man, I, Pastor Bob, I've been living a double life. Something today here stirred in my heart. Come down. We'd love to pray for you. We would love to talk with you about what it means to follow the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you right now, Jesus. Father, we confess that we are, we are hypocrites. We, oh, Lord, may you move on our hearts. Move us into a deeper, more genuine relationship with you where all that we are is for you. And we thank you, Lord. We praise you for dying on the cross for our hypocrisy, Lord. Father, today may we repent of our sins, Lord. If there's anybody here that has not done that, I pray today, Holy Spirit, that you would move on their hearts, that today would be the day that new life is experienced. And for all of us here, may we find hope under the wings of our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.